They hang the man and flog the woman who steals the goose from off the common. Yet let the greater villain loose that steals the common from the goose. The law demands that we atone when we take things we do not own, but leaves the lords and ladies fine who take things that are yours and mine. The poor and wretched don't escape if they conspire the law to break. This must be so, but they endure those who conspire to make the law. The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common, and geese will still a common lack until they go and steal it back. Damn. <laughs> I mean, this is a morning recording and now I'm awake. That was a fire poem. <laughs> <laughs> we unfortunately don't know who wrote that poem. It's like anonymous, author unknown sort of thing. But it's from the 17th century of England, the time period we'll be talking about today. Wow, I'm going to go steal some geese, I think. <laughs> that sounds really yeah. dangerous. Don't geese like bite? Well, also, you could be hanged or flogged. That too. (laughs) (laughs) It's bad all around. Uh, Yeah, geese can bite and stuff. This made me think of um, Untitled Goose Game, which is just a fun game. (laughs) Yeah, I still need to play that. I'm very behind on video games. (laughs) It's it's fun. So before we get into our main topic, I think we had a a comment uh, by a listener as to our Animal Farm episode that we wanted to address. This is from a user named B. Dudlick, and they say, Orwell was not a rich kid. His father was a civil servant in India. The children of civil servants were usually sent home for schooling to private boarding schools, a.k.a. public schools such as Eton. I believe the government paid the school fees for children of civil servants working overseas. Is this true? Did we fuck up? Uh, somewhat. I think it's... Uh... <laughs> It's it's not a 100% fuck up, but it's not 100%. I don't know. We weren't 100% right either. Degrees. I guess I was kind of forming an impression of him as fairly well-to-do from a few things that we didn't really cover in in the episode. So let's get to it. Orwell came from a, a family with historic wealth anyway, like generationally. Maybe you may could see him as maybe downwardly mobile because he's right that his father was a civil servant and that wasn't as well off as like some of his other you know, previous generations were like a clergyman or an absentee sugar plantation owner from back in the day. You know, that's, that's really well off, but his father, yeah, just a civil servant. His mother was the daughter of a speculative investor. Uh, so there was some money there. Um, but he's right that they couldn't really afford the public school fees. This is strange sounding to Americans, but yeah, it's what? reversed basically in England. So mm. public schools are like the fancy ones. Oh, weird. That's at least how I understand it. It's a, it's a poor rudimentary understanding of it. <laughs> but it's one of those like ground floor, first floor sort of differences that we have between here. Um, but anyway, they couldn't afford the public school fees. He did get a scholarship to a prep school to prepare for Eton. And he, get, he got a scholarship to go there too. He says that he kind of realized when he was there that he was from a poorer home compared to these, I guess, weirdos that were <laughs> rich enough to go there on their own. So. Okay, okay. Keep that in mind, not like poorer, like straight up poor. Yeah, he's not a pauper. Yeah, like when he's done copping for the British Empire in Burma or whatever. Again, not a good look, regardless of income. (laughs) When he's done with that, he moves back to London and then he he goes kind of exploring the East End, looking for poverty, trying to get to know like the real authentic poor people there. It's kind of, I don't know, that made me think like, uh, this is a very middle class, very, you know well-to-do sort of person 
to be able to do that and not have direct experience with it, you know? Yeah, okay. This reminds me of a movie we watched last night. We gave it a C minus. Uh, <laughs> it was not popular with us. It was called Darkest Hour. It was about Winston Churchill, and they have this scene where he like is conflicted about whether or not to go to war with Germany, and he goes down to the subway and like talks to regular people, and I'm like. <laughs> Both of us watching, we're like, this seems weird. And I'm like, this is so cheesy and over the top that it has to be true. Did a quick Google, not true. (laughs) (laughs) They made up something that was like super bullshit. Our core issue with the movie was that it was pretty boring. And we're like, well, if you're going to make shit up, at least make it exciting. (laughs) Come on. It's not like World War II was a boring time. (laughs) Yeah, he should have had some exciting way to come up with it, like... He, you know, he, I don't know. There's just got to be an exciting way to. It was and, and, super cheesy. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little bit just more about Orwell. Uh, he, he describes it as going native mm. for a bit within, in England, um, dressing badly, dressing like just someone who was in poverty, going by the name of P.S. Burton uh, to get material, to get content basically for a story <laughs> and an essay. <laughs> he was cosplaying. Yeah, and so I, I guess I would again add, he, sure, he's not rich. That's not what we're trying to say here. He's not, you know, living on a country estate or anything. But this is not the act, these aren't the actions of someone who's in poverty. Uh, when he moves to Paris in 1928, he's able to fall back on financial support from his aunt who's living there. Uh, at some point, he does get burgled and has to, like, work shitty jobs or is maybe just doing this to get more content because, again, he could just fall back <laughs> on his aunt or whatever. And he does move back in 1929 moves back in with his parents at that point. I I guess another thing to add here though, is he doesn't really have to be rich or middle-class or poor to be a good revolutionary. You know, we love our class traders here. It's true. We're not trying to host the poverty Olympics or anything, but I don't think when we came to kind of our conclusions that we arrived at, that he was, you know, super much an ally given some of the things that he had done. I'm just saying, like, I think it's super telling that after I finished reading that book, I'm like, there's no way this guy's down with the cause. <laughs> yeah. He just kind of did some, you know, I guess a mixed record because, like, he did some shit that messed us up, you know? <laughs> yeah. And again, it's fine to criticize, but I don't think that can be the only thing you do. And uh, it shouldn't end up being the thing you're known for. Yes. That's the thing. Yes. That, that's how I would put it. Yeah, like, I'm not a fucking Stalin fan either. Like, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. that's on the record. But the what frustrated me about Animal Farm in particular was that it was framed as, like, this is inevitable, this is going to happen for sure every time. And may, maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it really was just, let me retell the events of history yeah. through this metaphor, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't think he meant that, like, it was inevitable, but that's how it you know, is framed and that's not a hundred percent his fault. You know, so yeah, yeah, that's how it's taught. But thank you to the listener who brought that up. Always welcome corrections. For sure. All right. What are we doing today though? What was that cool goose poem about? <laughs> uh so today we're gonna be talking about the diggers. We've mentioned them before, but in this episode we're gonna introduce through the diggers a combination that might seem kind of novel to a lot of people, Christianity and communism. Mm, I usually don't mix those in my my personal kitchen, but okay. (laughs) 
So yeah, we'll 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 kind of talk more in depth about the diggers who we've mentioned before. We'll talk about what they did, who their leader was, their teachings, and how specifically I want to get into how these teachings didn't just say like, hey, here's how it's okay to like be a communist despite being a Christian, uh, but rather their point of view was more like, here's what we think being a Christian means, and then that's why we're going to be communists. Ooh, okay. I like that twist. Yeah, I found... I don't know. I think that's the most, one of the more interesting angles to it. Uh, Cause there's a ton. <laughs> I mean, there's a ton of way to interpret Christianity, just like any religion, right? American communists, maybe from other countries too, tend to think uh, more of like the reactionary or the moderate liberal interpretations at best. That's what's dominant here. But there are other interpretations that are, that are much cooler. And the diggers <laughs> have kind of an angle on that. That's still old fashioned kind of, but it's, it kind of gives us a window into this broader sort of Christian left idea that is totally out there. All right. Well, as someone who owns a t-shirt from the temple of Satan, convert me. (laughs) Well, 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 okay. That's one thing. You know, I do want to kind of explore why maybe communists should kind of, we should make sure that there is room for religious people to join our struggle I don't think we're trying, we're definitely not trying to convert anyone <laughs> in terms of the Christian sense. Like we have different religious views on that and that's like, that's fine. Like it's not worthwhile. I don't think it's a good revolutionary tactic to, to try to reunite the left under Christianity or any religion really like Can believe you what imagine? you want. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like there needs to be space for like, yeah, if you want to do that, sure. But like the problem with that is then you are excluding other religions or people who aren't into religion at all. Like that's not a good, good look. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to do that at all. Like you said, leave space and, and be comrades, be allies. Like, like the whole thing about, okay, socialists or communists or anarchists, like let's band together for now and figure out the rest later, you know? Sounds good. All right. Um, let's, oh, oh, I got it. Let's dig into this. Oh, good. Great, great, great. <laughs> this is morning, uh, Christine. This is what you signed up for. Start a pun count. See how many <laughs> digging references we can get. I'm going to do a lot. <laughs> All right. So the diggers, they were a group of radical Christians in England. They form around 1649 during a very tumultuous period in English history. Ooh, can I like guess a little bit about what's going on in this time period? Yes, you can. Okay, because I'm reading Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. Ooh, okay. And I'm learning about like the class distinctions that were even going on back in like colonial times, early colonial times. And it sounds like it was this like rapid stratification that just like, it obviously happened in the Americas because they're like, well, we're settling land. So like, here's the hierarchy. We're going to push out Native Americans. We're going to bring over like indentured servants. Oh, wait, that's too difficult. We're going to bring over slaves. So I'm learning about that side of it too. And they reach a point where they're worried about the the black population being too large. So they just start bringing in paupers from England. <laughs> like they're just like, cool, give me all your poor people and criminals. And so like everything was criminalized, like things like, you know, just vagrancy and loitering and all these like bullshit, you know, quote unquote, poor people crimes. Yeah. Well, the, this, yeah, this is, that's the time period we're talking about. And those people were 
and ended up, you know, being criminalized. Well, they ended up in the poor situation in the first place because of the economic uh, changes that were happening during this time. So this time period is actually the time period of the English Civil Wars, uh, which were from 1642 to 1651, part of the wider Wars of the Three Kingdoms from 1639 to 1653. That's some Game of Thrones shit. It, yeah, it has a cool name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's super complicated. We're talking multiple college courses on it, but the short and simple description uh, is you have the royalist supporters of King Charles I and the parliamentarian supporters of uh, of Parliament. <laughs> And the king wants to do like whatever he wants. You know, he wants to collect taxes. He wants to actually make the Church of England like more ceremonial, kind of Mm -hmm. more high Anglican sort of thing. And Parliament wanted to restrict the king's power, broadly speaking. You know, you have to listen to us. The whole thing's very complicated. But they fight and stuff. And it's in January of 1649. They fight and stuff could be the summary of a lot of like our podcasts. (laughs) <laughs> and they uh, they fight. Anytime we get to a war, we're like, eh, you know, <laughs> they yeah, fight and stuff. There were battles. Uh, it, in January 1649, Charles I, Parliament finally gets fed up with him, like, scheming to invade his own country because he was also the King of Scotland at the time. So they're like, fine, we got we to gotta behead you. So they, they execute him. Hot damn. And they abolish the monarchy shortly thereafter and become a... The, the Commonwealth, a republic. Holy shit, that, why don't I know about this? This is wild. It kind of goes under the radar, but England was chopping off monarchs' heads before, a hundred years before the French Revolution. Yeah, what the heck? The French get all the blame for that. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so the world seemed to be in chaos then, right? One of those historical moments when Lenin said that decades happen in weeks. And there were all the sorts of religious movements out there with really radical ideas for their time. Uh, The English Marxist historian Christopher Hill calls these sort of a lower class heretical culture. Break that down. So they tended to have like a millenarian outlook, uh, basically seeing themselves as living in the end times, the end of days. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm living the millenarian times. Okay, yeah, got it. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we definitely feel this sort of uh, <laughs> cliche term, but zeitgeist sort of now, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were very like anti-hierarchical, more like see it for yourself, but sort of also this like repent, the end is nigh sort of message. <laughs> okay, so like fuck it, but also repent. Well, for them, like the end coming was saying like, it's important to repent because like, you you know, everything's about to end. You're about to see, you know, God coming. Uh, <laughs> but the worldly things weren't important. The, the hierarchies mm, and stuff okay, like that was okay. bullshit. There were all these different groups. Uh, they had cool names. Uh, the ranters. I like that. Uh, the seekers. Pretty cool. The Quakers. We've heard of the Quakers. Heard of probably. Those. Yeah. Yeah. That's this is when they got their start. Oh, I didn't know that. The Muggletonians. That one doesn't have a good name. The Grindletonians. Mm-mm, don't like that uh, name. <laughs> those are. I thought those were good. Uh, and the Fifth Monarchists. Okay. Not a good one for sure. That one sounds bad. Well, they were... Yeah, they, 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 they thought, you know, okay, everything's about to end, right? The kingdom of God's soon to come. Like, literally, King Jesus <laughs> is oh. about to come back. Maybe in the year 1666, it's kind of an ominous number, you know? So 
That's what they were <laughs> out there saying. I like the seeker sound like you're going to wear a cool robe. The ranters, I think that's just me already. Like, I, unless they're like super racist or whatever. Like, I think I want to be in that group. That sounds fun. Like, I like to rant. What did the ranters do? They were leaderless. They denied the authority of churches, of scripture. They said that like sin wasn't a thing. It was just all in your head. Oh, yeah. I love these guys. There was like no hierarchy and that God is living within every living creature. Uh, so basically like live live on your own. Like you are the judge. You do the things. Oh, thing. look, very anarchist. Okay, I'm a ranter. Tag yourself. <laughs> <laughs> They're cool. I think I might have been a seeker. What's their the seekers deal? were leaderless. They weren't really an independent group. So like you could be in other churches or not in a church or whatever. They saw all churches as corrupt and they held their, this is why I'm a seeker. They held silent meetings. They like, they didn't have like a real, it was just kind of like go hang out in silence. Um, and you, but you could like speak out if like you got inspired by it, you know, the spirit or whatever moved you, but I would stay quiet the whole meeting. <laughs> You just like bring a book and you're like, oh, okay. This is great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's the nerds for sure. It was also a time when like you would just pick up the names that your enemies gave you. Like Mm. all of these were basically enemy names. Like people called them this, you know. I love that trend in history. It's so good. It's like, let the haters do the work for you. Oh, yeah. It's great. It's like, thanks for the free branding opportunity. We'll take that. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. We are ranters. Come join the ranters. (laughs) I love ranting. (laughs) So in addition to all these religious movements, there were also political reform movements that were going on. Uh, One group was pushing for an end to debtors, prisons. They were pushing for universal male suffrage, at least the male heads of households, which some people want to bring back to America because they're stupid. (laughs) (laughs) What? I've heard this. some, Some sort of conservative person at a conference was like, yeah, we should bring back like head of household voting what because they were i don't know because they're messed up yeah um, what the fuck they wanted biannual parliamentary elections uh they wanted a government by the house of commons rather than through the king or the house of lords so all these political reforms these guys were called the levelers we've mentioned them this yeah this was another uh hater nickname it was supposed to <laughs> ridicule them like oh you guys are radicals you want to level the differences in society you want to make the working class and the ruling class equal that sounds good I'm not seeing a problem well they didn't like that name <laughs> they were like this is too radical for us mm. uh, but the n- nickname for that is actually interesting it goes back to 1607 uh in the midland revolt okay which was this huge protest in the Midlands of England involving thousands of people. They were led by a guy named John Reynolds, who had the interesting nickname of Captain Pouch. <laughs> Did he just like always have snacks in his pockets or? You kind of guessed it, but he always carried a pouch. Okay. He was this tinker, just a, a tin worker who claimed authority from the king and from God to destroy or to level all enclosures. And he promised, you know, I'm going to keep you safe. All his followers, the protesters that were going around doing this, I'll keep you safe with the mysterious contents of my pouch. What? And so people go around, they go up pulling up these hedges and filling in the ditches that were enclosing the land. Uh, they end up getting crushed by the king. He, you know, they, they send in the army and, and kill a bunch of people and they hang and quarter the leaders, including Reynolds. Uh, it turns out, you want to know what was in his pouch? What was in that pouch, man? 
a piece of green cheese. <laughs> what the fuck? So you were right. He, he had did snack. have a snack. <laughs> Why? I'm so confused. He was just bluffing, basically. Okay, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Weird. But that's where the term leveler comes from, because these guys were leveling these enclosures. And that gets back to that goose poem we were talking about of them taking the commons. Okay, so can we talk about some terminology then? Yeah. When you talk about enclosures and like hedges, are you're talking about like an estate, I guess, would have hedges all around it? Yeah, uh, it's a way to a different way to divide up the land than had been before. People were so upset about enclosures because since feudal times in England, commoners, that term referred to people who had the right to use certain parts of the manorial lands in common. Okay, Uh, yes. They could let their animals graze there, fish there, take peat for fuel from there, or take wood from fuel there, even farm there sometimes. Okay, so that's what we mean by the commons. It's just like communal land. Yeah, there were very widespread and oftentimes kind of scattered scattered and pretty inconvenient uh, random like strips, maybe close to the edge of cliffs or on borders <laughs> of the manor lands or wherever that like it was just kind of inconvenient, but still a vital resource for poor people to be able to like get by. And so like part of the manor estate, you know, would be dedicated to this common land that people could use. So the enclosures the enclosure movement was where the landlords decided we could make a lot more money off of this common land by enclosing it, literally lumping the common fields all together into their bigger fields and walling them off with hedges or with ditches or what have you, uh, basically locking out the commoners and turning around and saying, Hey, I'll hire you as a wage worker on these fields that you used to could farm on your own. Bullshit. Hate it. Well, yeah, people hated it too. That's why you had those riots. It started as early as the 12th century, but like really slowly, unevenly, it picks up steam when Parliament gets in on the game with the Enclosure Act starting in the 17th century. So this is where we see a lot of people forced to either stay and become agricultural laborers, move to the cities and become industrial workers. If they fail in that regard, like end up paupers and shipped off to the new world and stuff or revolt by leveling the enclosures and trying to take back what the lords had stolen from them. Damn, okay, that's intense. In addition to the political turmoil, you also have this economic chaos going on too. And so the levelers, they were accused of being supporters of that last bit, right? Because of their their reforms, which they're saying like, no way, we're not radicals, you know? We're, we're pro-property rights, we're pro-government. We just want good, fair government, you know, that sort of thing. They were thoroughly moderate. Losers. Their newspaper actually was even called the moderate. (laughs) Boring. (laughs) Right? Well, the diggers were not moderate. The diggers called themselves the true levelers. So (laughs) the analogy I have for this, think of nowadays, right? The Democrats in America, (laughs) anytime they're derided as communists, if they do something, any little thing. (laughs) <laughs> well, like the diggers are like us saying, hey, no, we're, we're actually communists. <laughs> that ain't no communism. Let me show you real communism. Yeah. So like they're they're saying, no, we're the, we're the true levelers. We actually like that shit, you know? Hell yeah. <laughs> so the true levelers, they follow the teachings of one Gerard Winstanley. What's up with Gerard? Well, he was an ex-tailor uh, from London uh, whose business collapsed in the Civil War uh, and this you know, makes him fall on kind of hard times. Uh, he has to move to Cobham in Surrey with his wife's family. They were very well off. 
but he has to like find work for himself and he's only able to find work like as a laborer herding people's cows. So it's kind of a Prada Tanada experience for him. <laughs> Listeners, Prada Tanada is a uh, Univision original movie. It's very good slash bad. Mostly bad. <laughs> yeah, it's beloved, though, by us. It stars the girl from Spy Kids, if you, if you know <laughs> that lady. So this greatly upsets him, right? And he starts seeing the world uh, from a different perspective. I mean, he had been kind of, I mean, very well off very successful bourgeois sort of situation. And now, I mean, I think he still does have kind of a safety net similar to what we were talking about with Orwell, but he's really thrown, you know, he's feels like he's cast down, right? He's feels like he's fallen on hard times. So he starts to see the world in apocalyptic terms, like these other groups. One of the phrases he uses in his writing is the old world is running up like parchment in the fire. You know, it's just getting consumed. And so he does what any of us would do. He starts posting about it, <laughs> which in 17th century means writing pamphlets. The first of Win Stanley's really radical works that I could find anyway was called The New Law of Righteousness. It was in January 1649. Uh, his arguments that he makes in here are heavily, heavily, heavily infused. They're, they're like really completely centered on like Christian language. It's kind of a lot of times hard to understand because it's just a lot of Bible stuff. Um, but I'm just going to pick out the highlights of what he says, because it's kind of long. <laughs> so one, he encourages wage workers. He says, you dust of the earth that are trod underfoot, you poor people that make both scholars and rich men your oppressors by your labors. He says to heed his words and, quote, work together and eat bread together without either giving or taking hire. So he's kind of saying, like, do a commune. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, make your own way. Don't hire anyone and don't be hired by anyone. Yeah, don't work for these assholes, right? Hell yeah. He castigates the rich. Uh, he says they, quote, look upon others as servants and slaves, as if the earth were made only for you to live at ease and honor upon it, while others starved for want of bread at your feet and under your oppressing government. And he goes on to say, was the earth made for to preserve a few covetous, proud men to live at ease and for them to bag and barn up the treasures of the earth from others that they might beg or starve in a fruitful land? Or was it made to preserve all her children? None can say their right is taken from them. For let the rich work alone by themselves and let the poor work together by themselves. The rich in their enclosure saying, this is mine. The poor upon their common saying, this is ours. The earth and fruits in common. And who can be offended at the poor for doing this? None but covetous, proud, lazy, pampered flesh that would work for the devil to maintain his greatness that he may live at ease. Guys, this is the 1600s. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. You could just tweet this today and it'd be a fire tweet. Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, he wow. Calls, he tells the rich people that they're working for the devil. Nice. <laughs> That's kind of uh, yeah. cool, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> I'd be into that. Back in the day, you could just say, "My enemy works for Satan." <laughs> Literally works for Satan, <laughs> and not in a good way, not in a cool way. Yeah, not in a badass <laughs> punk way. <laughs> yeah, and so so he's you know he's ranting here, I guess, channeling a little bit of the ranters, maybe. <laughs> uh, but he states his ultimate goal. Sort of I, to me, this kind of echoes Kropotkin a little bit. He says, what do we get by our labor in the earth? 
but that we may eat bread and live together in love and community of righteousness. That sounds lovely. He just wants to hang out with his bros. Eat some bread. Work Who together. Doesn't? Yeah, and this is what we say sometimes, like, right? We always end up talking to our <laughs> friends, like, what if we just start a comedy? <laughs> like, <laughs> Every time, like, more than two, uh, maybe even just more than one, anytime those millennials get together, we're always, by the end of it, like, uh, can we just commune it up? Yeah, wherever there are two or more of you, I am there. <laughs> you know, the, the dream of the common <laughs> is there. But I mean, okay, so like if we take that apart, I think to me, it looks like he has somewhat of an understanding of class antagonism, right? Yeah. It's wage workers versus landowners. He's got the dichotomy down. I think the only reason it sounds maybe a little different is because it's like less factory or industrial focused, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's yeah. about it. It's more agrarian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, he was aware of city life having lived in London, but it just, it was, and we we're talking about, like, people did have to go to the city to find work, so it's not totally foreign. Right, yeah. You could see how this would be, like, the agrarian branch of it that would then be able to link up with, these ideas, rather, would be able to link up with the urban proletarian message right like those could be two different kind of you know in their terms two different gospels two different messages to spread to people to get them on board like a unity between i guess the peasants and the and the workers but i would say that to me another thing that stuck out was that this was definitely not marxist like in terms of scientific socialism why not so for me it doesn't it's his primary critique is not that this is a historical process but that People are being greedy or being sinful. Mm-hmm. It's like a moral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's moralistic. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like, I guess I like the scientific version of it because I find it's useful for like kind of onboarding people who are like very logical and practical kind of folk who are like, oh, this is the most efficient way, things like that. But I think the moral argument, like, is more important to me. Like, even if someone was like, yeah, you're going to waste a lot under communism, I'd be like, that's cool, because, like, I would like to take care of people. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's more, you know, this is our classic distinction, more ANCOM versus uh, a Marxist-Leninist or something. But, but yeah, you're right. Like, this, this does sort of echo that, like we said, Kropotkin, that anarcho-communist. I mean, that was a very moral call, right? That was a very, like, all for all. Uh, let's just do this because it's good and people deserve this, right? Exactly, yeah. It's just, it's putting that moral need up front. Yeah, and that's very much what he was doing here, Win Stanley. So maybe you're wondering, this is a lot different than the Christianity that I've heard from anybody. <laughs> yeah, where's my pal Jesus during all of this? Well, okay, here's what I would say. It is entirely possible to be both genuine Christians and genuine leftists, communist, socialist, anarchist, whatever. Because just, I mean, you know, the basics, Christians worship Jesus as the son of God, and they seek to emulate him in life and follow his teachings and the examples of those of his followers, right? That's the, that's the basic core of it. And a lot of those teachings, not 100% of them, but a lot of them and those examples are decidedly leftists. Yeah, yeah. I mean... He fucking fucked up those markets on the square at one time when he got aggro. Yeah. He uh, told all the rich people to get rid of their money and to, like, you can't get into heaven if you're rich. Like, he's pretty socialist. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was he was a, a working class guy. He's a carpenter, yeah. 
drops everything to start preaching the coming of a radical new kingdom of God where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. He, he lives among the poor and the outcasts, swimming among the masses, as Mal would say. You're right. He told, you know, a rich would-be follower, hey, if you're serious about following me, sell everything and give it to the poor. It's as hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's just, it's impossible, right? It's, it's, he's, he's such a challenge to local authorities and the Roman Empire that he ends up getting executed as an enemy of the state. I was about to say, enemy of the state. That's pretty baller. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and one of the books that, of the Bible that the diggers focus on is, is the Acts of the Apostles, uh, popularly just referred to as Acts, um, which tells the tale of how Jesus's followers spread the word of their new faith. They rely on popular support to avoid punishment from an oppressive government. Like repeatedly they piss off the local authorities who want to do something to them, but they're like, we can't because the people will riot. (laughs) So they just have to keep setting them free. And they're like, Hey, don't spread this word. And they just straight up tell like the police, they tell them, no, we're going to, we're just going to go spread the word right after you free us. Jesus says a cap. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, these guys lived communally. They started a commune, basically. They shared everything they had with each other. And that's kind of where the diggers drew their inspiration from, was from these early apostles, from that early communistic church. Interesting. Yeah, because like the original church was was very communistic. And then like in the middle there got kind of like underground because it, it was very like, you know, it was illegal. Oh, yeah. The writers of the gospel or the, uh, the Paul, this guy, Everyone writes a bunch of letters, they get, yeah, they get executed like brutally and stuff. That's where you get all like the sick martyr stories. Yes. Yeah. So this was like anti-authoritarian, like anti-Roman, you know, subversive. And you're right. The early church was really like commun, not the early church, but the early like Christians, I guess they were very communistic and everything. And they shared their property. There's even this one, this one story in Acts where this one guy like claims to sell all his property and give it to them so he can join them. Ananias, but he actually like secretly kept some of it for himself and they call him out. They're like, dude, we know, like we've just been told, God told us that you held that to yourself. You lied to us. How could you do this? And telling him that, he died on the spot. Holy shit. <laughs> died on the spot. The Bible said that this person who did not. Didn't join the cause. Sell everything and live in the commune died on the spot. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> so harsh punishment for at least for trying to deceive the commune. Maybe if you don't join it, it's fine. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let me ask, because I'm not yeah. a biblical scholar. Nor am I, nor am I. (laughs) (laughs) You do have to like toss out a lot of the Bible, though, to make this like work, right? Like you got to toss out a lot of Old Testament stuff, I imagine. Yes, there's there's a lot of contradictions. I'm not great at theological stuff. Um, And so there there are, you know, the right wingers can come to you and say, well, there are biblical reasons to be this way, too. So there's there's other stuff. And the Old Testament also, I mean, it's not 100 percent right wing. There's there's like the the. If you want to get into like mm, the laws that the the Jewish people were following and stuff, like there's the Jubilee year where every so often you would just forgive all the debts. I would love a Jubilee year. (laughs) Yeah. So there's, you know, there's, it's a mixed record, I guess. 
But I mean, hey, if if the right wing wants to wants to ignore how or try to paper over how the early Christians were living and and that message and the more you know anti consumerist and and the uh, that sort those sorts of messages that Jesus offered, we can toss out Leviticus. <laughs> yeah, like there's if there's different interpretations, I choose mine. You know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I, I, what I mean to say is that there it's not wildly off base to be. To, to see this like leftist Christianity. It's not like made up out of whole cloth. Um, it's a valid interpretation. It's a valid like praxis of Christianity to like do this sort of commune thing. There's like a lot of textual evidence for it and a history of it in practice, like in terms of the early followers of Jesus. So like, it's not like, oh, I just read one passage and I'm going to interpret it this way. It's like a significant chunk. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's equally as valid and I would argue more valid, but I'm biased uh, (laughs) uh, interpretation of it. Yeah. Uh, Again, not an expert. I usually text my mother-in-law when I'm stuck on a crossword biblical clue. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) it's always Esau guys because it has a ton of vowels in it. So yeah, that's a pro tip. Esau. Yeah. I always said Esau. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I guess I don't either. All right. Let's get back to that praxis and let's get back to the diggers specifically talking about what did they do? Because when Stanley, he's posting, he's gaining followers, <laughs> he's posting. Uh, but this is not enough. He wants to do something. Yeah. I mean, eventually you have to move on from posting. So I hear <laughs> people <laughs> I tell love us it. this. <laughs> <laughs> so on Sunday, April 1st, 1649, when Stanley and anywhere from four to 40 other people, it's pretty unclear. <laughs> That's a big range. More sources say four, so maybe that, but I also saw 30 to 40 people, so I don't know. But some people (laughs) go out to the old common land at St. George's Hill in Surrey and start planting parsnips, carrots, and beans. Delicious. I love parsnips. I mean, I like the other ones too, but parsnips, man, delicious. Yeah, they're going to make them some food. Here's a a dark side note. St. George's Hill nowadays is this very exclusive covered in mansions uh, region of of just outside london don't Uh, love that no it's 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 really horrible it's just it's sort of a dancing on the graves of this whole thing you know it's isn't saint george the one that killed the dragon yes you're that's right is the hill where he killed the dragon i i I don't know (laughs) it (laughs) might just be named after i'm googling (gasps) did you know john lennon's imagine might have been based on the diggers I saw that. It looked pretty tenuous. Uh, <laughs> it looked like it was this. just also utopian. That's all. Okay. <laughs> anyway, that was my brief dragon-based inquiry. The diggers invited everyone to come and join their new utopian colony, promising to hold all in common together, to abolish wages and practice, to start an anarcho-communist community, and eventually around 200 people end up joining them here. Also... At least 10 other communes are established around this time throughout the South Midlands, similar to the Diggers Colony. Hell yeah. Word spreads, right? Nice. (laughs) Everyone's planting their stuff. Yeah, this spreads so much that when Stanley ends up writing another pamphlet, it's kind of a manifesto called The True Leveler's Standard Advanced. Not the best title. Yeah, (laughs) it sounds like a textbook. Right? Yeah. (laughs) But anyway some highlights from that too. I just, I like the guy's writing style. So (laughs) in the beginning of time, 
the great creator reason, made the earth to be a common treasury. But not one word was spoken in the beginning that one branch of mankind should rule over another. I mean, to be fair, there were only like two people when that happened, but... (laughs) True, fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. His summary of the fall of humanity is really interesting. He's kind of saying, everyone is a perfect creature with the spirit of God and reason within them. Thanks. And they don't have a need for teachers or rulers. They should just listen to that, to that spirit, right? Mm, Go with your gut. Yeah. But he says humanity turns from this because it's relatively hard to do, right? Spending time figuring out what's right. So instead, they kind of like get distracted, get obsessed with the objects of creation. So they start like living a more material life, Mm, which is fair. You know, okay, fine. I like material things. I do. Um, so they find need of teachers and rulers, right? They, they're, they're no longer thinking for themselves, so they have to go turn to people to do that for them. And this is how power arises, uh, how some people are these teachers, are these rulers. And so he says, quote, the earth, which was made to be a common treasury of relief for all both beasts and men, was hedged in to enclosures by the teachers and rulers, and others were made servants and slaves, and the earth that is made a common storehouse for all is bought and sold and kept in the hands of a few whereby the great creator is mightily dishonored. I might have a bone to pick with, with the characterization, I guess, of people getting distracted by material things. I think it's less distracted than like overwhelmed because we've talked about this before. Like if you are struggling to make a living, you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck and you know, even then barely so, you are not going to have time to, you know, figure out the best way to live your life and like a way to be revolutionary or any of that stuff because you're just trying to fucking survive. So, yeah. And in in this case, you you know, you might turn to an authority figure just to like tell you what to do, not because like you're dumb or because like you are too lazy to figure are it out. Distracted yeah. or lazy. Yeah. It's just that like I I need a grounding force because my life feels very tenuous. Yeah, that's true. And plus, I mean, you've got to get this message from somewhere initially, right? No one just pops out knowing Christianity. I don't know, but yeah, you're right. It's 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 He's putting a little bit of it too much on people themselves. But I did like kind of this message of the earth being common for everyone, both humans and animals. animals. I love that. Like, even earlier, you were reading another passage, like, this could totally be an environmentalist stripe. Like, just saying, like, the riches of the earth are not meant to be used by a few. Like, yeah, you could take that to mean like, yeah, now everyone gets to fuck up the earth. But it's like, no, it's like we should preserve it. Yeah. And there's a big message in this uh, that is like the earth, you know, at the beginning, right? Everything was harmonious. He's talking about the Garden of Eden and everything, but he's <laughs> painting it as like, this is possible now that we can live in harmony with nature and with the earth like that's supposed to be, but it's messed up, you know? Yeah. Because I mean... When you look at small scale farming, not I'm sure not all farms are good about this, smaller farms, but generally you're going to have more sustainable practices than a very large farm. And I'm sure that's true even in this time period. I'm sure like, what Mm -hmm. the fuck do lords know about like crop rotation? Probably not a lot. (laughs) 
Well, agriculturally, I mean, they were going to, once they do enclosure, they're going to like greatly improve agricultural production, mm. but that's looking at it from a Output. consumer standpoint. Yeah. From a let's produce as much as it can ooh, standpoint. Ooh, intensive versus extensive. Yeah. Yeah. Karpotkin. And he's more saying like, let's not so much look at how much we can produce to export to other countries and make money. Let's make sure we can all survive and also not ruin the earth, you know? Uh, another passage in the True Leveler's Standard Advanced. Uh, again, just a great title. Just a terrible name. Uh, another passage. He talks about how England is guilty of doing bad things. Uh, the powers of England, you have promised to make this people a free people. Yet you have wrapped us up more in bondage and oppression lies heavier upon us. While he says, while promising liberty, while promising a free nation, people are oppressed by the courts, bailiffs, committees, officers, and he says, so-called justices. <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he also calls out landlords. Love it. Let me hear it. Those that buy and sell land and are landlords have got it either by oppression or murder or theft. Yes, I think about this all the time. Like, we're living in caveman times. Like, that's why people have things. Yep. They <laughs> stole it, or their strong. father stole it, their grandfather stole it, somebody stole it. Somebody with a bigger army than someone else. Yep, 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 yep. He says, all landlords live in breach of the Ten Commandments, uh, namely the prohibitions on stealing and killing. Ooh, yes. And he says, basically paraphrasing because it was kind of confusing how he laid it out but charging people to live is a form of violence hoarding housing is stealing it from people who need houses oh yes and i think that's such an interesting twist on property law because in the capitalist system property law is all about like individual ownership but if you twist that to be what is the definition of stealing it's not you take something from one guy it's you are taking something from the community Yes. I yeah. love that. So he's calling out the system that is, and then he kind of offers his own vision. Says, when once the earth becomes a common treasury again, as it must, and then he kind of says, because of prophecy, you know, uh, mankind must have the law of righteousness once more writ in his heart, and all must be made of one heart and of one mind. Then this enmity in all lands will cease. None shall dare seek dominion over others. Neither shall any dare to kill another, nor desire more of the earth than another. Damn. Okay. I'm picturing that the future meme with spaceships going around. <laughs> yeah. That's what would have happened if we had just gotten our shit together in the 16 fucking hundreds. <laughs> yeah. I was picturing just like Animal Crossing, man. Yeah. Nobody kills anybody in Animal Crossing. You just hang out. <laughs> I hope they don't. <laughs> <laughs> I do ignore Gulliver on the beach quite a bit. Yeah, but he always comes back. He's right? fine. He apparently gets up and is fine. <laughs> Eventually he wakes up. He's like, what the fuck? I think he's a drunk. I'm worried about him. <laughs> he's got, yeah, he's got a problem. Okay. You mentioned prophecy and end times. I'm just curious because I think that shit is cool. Sometimes I like to like spook myself out by reading about revelations. Ooh. Yeah. Were people like seeing signs where like, mm, I saw four horses together. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was so concrete as that. There were, like we mentioned, the fifth monarchists. They were like, oh, 1666 is coming up. Like, that's spooky. And you have this tumult that is easy to link with the chaos of revelations of, like, people. St I mean, people were starving 
in large parts of the country just because of the disruptions of the war food production's off you know and and you have you know oh that the, the famine or whatever the the horsemen representing that and people mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing kings being overthrown do you have an antichrist uh i don't think he pointed to one specifically so <laughs> just checking there's all kinds of crazy shit isn't there like there's a beast with like two heads or something i don't know it's been a while oh yeah 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 you're right the all the the crazy beasts and the that one is one thing the fifth monarch has said too was like there had been these four kingdoms before and so like soon the fifth kingdom god's kingdom was coming you know kind of saying that the that those beasts or whatever represented ancient monarchies that had gone come and gone that sort of thing it's weird but (laughs) (laughs) interesting some more from win stanley he said he talks about his concept of true freedom he says england is not a free people till the poor that have no land have a free allowance to dig and labor the commons and so live as comfortably as the landlords that live in their enclosures yeah yeah i mean we've talked about that before like in an american sense like we're all about freedom it's like freedom to what to like work a fucking shit job and barely survive and be in debt like i ain't freedom right what is freedom without the security of just basic life yeah yeah well you're not actually free because all your time is taken up just trying to survive yep he was saying that even back then So he says, what are the, you know, what are the diggers going to do to make this happen? He says, the work we are going about is this. And here he's kind of just justifying what they're doing, right? He says to dig up George's Hill and the waste ground thereabouts and to sow corn and to eat our bread together by the sweat of our brows. We're going to do some direct action, right? We're going to make it happen (laughs) right here, right now. We're going to end wage slavery, bring about, you know, this new, I mean, this new Eden, new kingdom of God sort of thing, you know? Hell yeah. I love it. He also ends with a an incredible little <laughs> a warning uh, to people. <laughs> okay. Uh, basically, he says, if any one of you great ones of the earth bring in your stock into this common treasury as an offering, we will work for you and you shall receive as we receive. But if you will not and you endeavor to oppose, then know that he that delivered Israel from Pharaoh of old is the same power still. Meaning, uh, God's going to fuck you up. Yes. Right. Watch out or plagues. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow, man. I want to go back in time and just give these guys like a big gun and be like, do it, do it for real. <laughs> <laughs> That's my great plan. Just arm them with AKs. Yeah. Go. Yeah. Get, let the diggers win. They were nonviolent. Oh, damn it. So for all this talk, they were really relying on... They are really relying on God and plagues? Yes. Fuck. Okay. Maybe this won't work. They are resolved to nonviolence, which is not the same for all Christian radical movements throughout. But here, here <laughs> it definitely was. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and guess why this didn't work out. <laughs> was it that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, that that contributes for sure. Fuck. So I don't know. Again, like this is has that same sort of morality call, which we've kind of said that's fine. You know, I think it's a cool condemnation of injustice. You know, it kind of arrives at the same place. Like, let's do, let's have this stateless commune. Oh, it's kind of interesting to call it stateless though, because it's like the kingdom of God. But whatever, it kind of takes a way different road, but ends up in the same let's all live in a community sort of way. That sounds fucking dope. Well, that was a pamphlet he wrote 
kind of as they're getting started with their communes. Uh, but it doesn't last, as you, uh, as you mentioned. <laughs> Which king did it? It's not really a king at the time, because the king has been beheaded and the oh, monarchy yeah. has been abolished. Whoops, I forgot about that. <laughs> Just crazy. How do they... Okay, spoiler. How do they bring the king back again? What do they do? Uh, the king is restored. The restoration in 1660. What happens is Oliver Cromwell... That guy. ...takes power... In the, in the Republic as like Lord Protector or something like that. Um, and he starts fucking over Ireland. Like he's a real asshole. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like him and, and his kind of chosen parliament and, uh, and the army. They're the ones that really have a big, big power at the time. Lots of power at the time. And they decide to bring the king back? Well, when Oliver Cromwell dies, his son briefly takes power, like inherits it. But he's shitty and everyone's just like, you suck. Why are you in charge? Yeah, so Cromwell dies in 1658, and his son Richard Cromwell takes power as Lord Protector, but he has to cede power to Parliament because he's, like, bad. And Parliament's kind of, like, mucking about for a bit. They kind of just bring the son of the executed king, Charles II, they bring him back. Okay, okay. And that's called the Restoration. Okay. Who actually does do this to the diggers are the landlords. Oh, God, I hate them. Yeah, they suck. They remember, they're thieves and killers. Uh, <laughs> For sure. They take their revenge by whining to the government. And the government sends out Sir Thomas Fairfax, who is the commander of the new model army, the, the parliament's army. And he goes, he, he takes some troops out there to see what all the fuss is about. And he interviews Win Stanley and some other digger leaders and talks to them. And they're, they... The sources say that they did not remove their hats because they, you know, they refused Ooh. to remove their hats. Very Love it. not respectful or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Fairfax, he basically doesn't do anything about them. He's like, this is not a big deal. Landlords, you deal with it. He says to them kind of like, use the courts, figure it out. You do it. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, the landlords take that and run with it. Uh-oh. So it turns out pretty bad. Like, by not taking a side, he kind of takes a side, right? Because mm, he's just like, oh, just run over them. Yeah. Uh, the landlords around send armed thugs to attack the digger communes. They beat people up. They burn crops and Fuck. houses and destroy their tools. At St. George's Hill, this is led by their lord of the manor, Francis Drake. Is that the same Francis Drake from, like, the rest of history? It is not. No, it's a different okay. one. This different is a, a much less cool. Okay. Francis. I don't know if the other guy was cool, honestly, but. Uh, he sailed a bunch, but he probably was also very colonial. He was probably bad. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> this guy was also shitty. <laughs> and so he, he attacks him in this way. He also uses the courts, which of course, you know, the landlords kind of control and they do this kind of rigged situation where they don't even let the diggers like speak in their defense or anything. Um, but they find them guilty of being ranters. <laughs> That's me. That's how I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> guilty of ranting. This bitch always ranting. <laughs> and so they force them off the land. They just say, uh, we're going to call in the army to evict you if you don't move. And so they abandon St. George's Hill in August of 1649. Some of them go pretty close by to Little Heath 
in Surrey and try again. They built a little commune there. They published some pamphlets there about, you know, the communist kingdom of God to come. The process, though, repeats itself. Uh, The local lord of the manor, Parson John Platt, a real asshole, organizes more attacks on the diggers and drives them out by April 1650. Well, fuck. That did not last long. No, it really did not. Like, how long is this? I lost track of the timeline. It's like a year. I mean, they start in April... They're kicked out by August, and then their second experiment is done by April of the next year. Well, yeah, that's that's not a long one, boys. No. And that's how their kind of demise unfolds. When Stanley himself has a weird life afterward, it's it's kind of a departure. He, he um, goes on to manage someone's estate, kind of a weird job choice. What? Yeah, but it, it's like for a year or something, and they're like, you suck at managing my estate. I guess maybe he was letting <laughs> poor people do their thing. I don't know. Yeah, probably. But in 1652, he publishes another pamphlet called The Law of Freedom in a Platform. It's more of the same, so I'm not really going to get into it. But basically here he addresses it to Oliver Cromwell, and he pleads with him to enact his you know previously stated vision throughout England. He's like, you have the power. Come on. Can you imagine? There's no way that fucker would do that. Oh, yeah, you're right. Let me just yeah. make this a law. Obviously, yeah, he, <laughs> he did not. And then when Stanley just kind of fades into the historical background and abandons his radical roots altogether, he um, in 1657, his father-in-law gives him a manor, and he just sort of like goes, you know, returns to prosperity and respectable society. He's involved in the Church of England. He even eventually gets elected constable. What? Yeah. I don't like that. It's kind of, yeah, it's it's not good. Uh, I mean, he has less hardship in his life by this point. He, I guess he feels a need, a less of a need for radicalism, you know? Did the whole, like, get boomer, like, getting conservative when you get older sort of thing. <laughs> that sucks, man. Not not a good look. He, I mean, he goes back to business later on, I think. It's kind of unclear if it's the same guy that, like, starts being, like, a corn merchant at some point. Maybe it is him, maybe it's not. Either way, it does seem like he loses his radical edge, and he ends up dying in 1676. That's kind of their story. When Stanley and the Diggers, they do have kind of an interesting, like, historical shout-out. When Stanley is memorialized in Russia after the October Revolution. Ooh, okay. In 1918, they took the old Alexander Garden obelisk, which was, like, to celebrate however many years of Romanov rule. Mm, Yeah, we can't have that. Yeah, well, they took that and they altered it and they instead had like a bunch of names inscribed on it. The names of outstanding thinkers and personalities of the struggle for the liberation of workers. Ooh, I hope I'm on there one day. Yeah, well. <laughs> Probably uh, not. <laughs> we'll have to do a new one or something. I think they <laughs> took that one and reworked it later or something. Damn it. Along with Marx and Engels and Saint-Simon and Fourier and Proudhon and Bakunin and Plekhanov you have Gerard Winstanley. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And also, like a more recent historical shout-out, one of the ways that I heard about the diggers in the first place was through a song by Chumbawamba. (laughs) The guys from the FIFA World Cup 98 soundtrack? Yes, yeah, their famous hit, Tub Thumping. Yes. Uh, Well, they have a maybe lesser-known album called English Rebel Songs, 1381 to 1984. Oh, that's right. It's a real banger. Um, (laughs) I I still need to listen to it. It's good. It's addictive. I love it. 
listeners check it out it's on spotify or wherever you want to find your music uh but one song called the diggers song uh which is all about like you know standing up to the landlords and how the courts and the lawyers and everything is rigged against you and yeah it's super cool wow that's amazing that they're not just about like drinking and having a good time you can also be revolutionary <laughs> yeah yeah they're they're super leftists they're like anarcho-communists and stuff they're whoa cool. that's awesome so yeah that's what i've got on the diggers well i dug it <laughs> there we go uh, you've, you've been very restrained i think thank you thank you <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how many you held back but uh not that many i couldn't think of any it's early it's <laughs> yeah it's too early for that so yeah discussion thoughts conclusions that sort of thing i mean my review i'm very into it again not super into the god part but if that's what gets somebody on board then sure i i think i would you know he was much more into like the prophecy kind of kingdom of god stuff whereas i think now it'd be more effective to like like leave some of that out because I mean, one, how many times have people said, like, oh, the Earth is ending? I mean, I think it's for real this time, guys. But <laughs> it might be for real this time. It might be for real this time. So <laughs> that's yeah. not necessarily something we want to throw out, but... Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that, like, like we said before, I think this is a useful tool to recognize the history of this stuff. Because, like, again, I who, who has heard of this stuff? I don't know. Maybe English people feel free to tell us. You're like, yeah, everyone knows what the diggers here. And maybe so. I mean, that's very likely in england or in britain overall but here in america it's certainly not as well known yeah and we learn like a fair bit of british history as a precursor to american history so like you know like i don't know a ton a very limited amount i would say in the education system anyway you barely get any like the english civil wars and stuff and the wider wars of the three kingdoms like that's that's not (laughs) that's not not really really taught Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but you've taken classes on that shit. I mean, did Mm -hmm. you know about the diggers before that or in that? I did not learn about them in that context, no. See, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know how big of a movement it was. Like, it sounds like it was fairly regional. And it was very brief. And it was very brief, yeah. But it was so radical that I just, I think that's super telling that even back then we were having these same issues And it was told from a different lens. It wasn't, you know, as historical materialism. It was more like morally, but also I would still say materialist, you know? It was focused on that, yeah, in terms of like, uh, or the way to live this moral life out in the real world was through these material ways, right? Like, uh, it very much harkens back to this one passage. Uh, It's a Bible thing, but like, there's like, faith without works is dead. Is this famous phrase that it's from James, I think it's um, basically saying like, it doesn't matter what we believe. If we're not living out in the world, do we really believe it? And I think, you know, that's where you're getting the material thing from is like, he's saying it's important for us to do these things in our actual world here on earth. If we're really going to call ourselves Christians that believe these things. And I would even argue it's a little bit historical in that sense of he's saying, oh, this is inevitable because the kingdom of God is going to be here. He he is painting it as like part of the natural cycle of history. It's through like a religious lens, obviously, but he is saying like, this is going to fucking happen. And I, Yeah. And I think that lines up kind of well with what we were saying, because, okay, so think about his time. Everybody 
in all of the political discussions, like the most you could say at that time was like, let's have religious tolerance. Like, let's let people, (laughs) you know, believe different things, even if they're wrong. And we know they're wrong because our religion is right. Like, that's kind of what you had, you know. So when he's speaking to people in this religious way, one, it's like he does genuinely believe these things. But it's like a pretty universal touchstone for people at that time. It's part of like literally the language, like so yeah. much religious stuff is is caught up in like how we say like good morrow and shit like that, you know, like that's, that's just the environment of the time. Yeah, yeah. Like goodbye is like God be with you or something mm-hmm. that's just contraction and things. Yeah, like it's, it's a safe assumption. <laughs> like everyone's into it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think sometimes Marxists get this wrong, like we uh, look back on this and say like, oh, he was a very smart guy. So like, obviously he wasn't really into this religion <laughs> stuff. He was just trying to like talk to people. And I don't think that's true. I think he was genuinely believing this, but like we can take that message of talking to people as they would understand it. Right. And everyone then would understand things. You should govern your society based on your religious beliefs, basically is how they saw it. You know, we can understand that and say, okay, well, we should speak to people now. And a lot, you know, there are a lot of people of faith and we should be like, Hey, our message like does also appeal to your faith, you know, in these ways, whatever it is. Right. Now it's more about like, yeah, it doesn't contradict. It aligns up with it. Like stuff like that. Whereas his was more like, well, everybody's Christian. So like we should be doing this. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I can, there's a, two different ways to come at it. Like, you know, Christians, here's why you should be communist. And then, Communists, here's why you should let Christians join be, your club. Do their thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's here's why not to be rude about religion. So anyway, I found it very interesting researching all this stuff, and there's just so much more throughout history in Christianity and in other uh religious traditions that I think would would be interesting to get into one day. Yeah, definitely. I think this is gonna be a good series because, you know, like it's very common for leftists just to totally divorce those ideas um, or dismiss them as restrictive and things like that. And Christianity has been used to do a lot of bad things. Yes. <laughs> Let, let's not paper over that, you know? A hundred percent, yeah. Colonization, wasn't a fan of that. Racism, not a fan of that, you know? Anti-queer yeah. stuff, not good. But, I mean, if you interpret it in, you know, in this way, I mean, I don't know enough about the diggers you know, what was in their hearts if they would actually be like not, not racist and not against gay people. But that was a different situation. You're right. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that like it, it all comes down to interpretation. And I think what maybe scares leftists and I'm, I mean, I'm speaking to, to my own thoughts here is there is an uncertainty I think that comes with religion of, you know, someone could just change their mind to be like, actually, we believe this now. <laughs> mm. And, you know, just like as as a queer, you know, little person, I'm like, I hope you don't change your mind to be like, well, now this is wrong. You know, your whole lifestyle. Fuck you guys. You know, I guess that's my concern, because like when you're coming from a more strictly materialist and historical perspective, it's easier to be like, well, this is what we're going to do because it makes sense, you know? Which that's that true. can also get fucked up too, you know. That's that's not always the only lens you should use. I see what you're saying because it boils down to what do you what do you have as the basis of your beliefs? So historical materialists, or broadly speaking, just leftists, right? We we're basing our beliefs and stuff on 
something there's no part of our of our roots that say anything like let's discriminate against people uh, (laughs) against people who aren't straight whereas for christianity if you are using the bible there are parts of it that you can take to take and run with that are bad in our modern sense and so you just have to rely on people saying yeah but not that yes exactly that's what you're saying okay yeah i think i think that's it and and that's not to say that like materialism or like that kind of logic has never been used in like an oppressive manner, but it's to me feels less likely to do that, especially if you're coming from like an anarcho-communist lens. Like the only interpretation I could see of that that gets problematic is whenever you're talking about things like democracy and like, yeah, if everyone in your commune votes to be racist, like that sucks, you know, like that's, that's a problem for another podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that's its parallel is, you know, that that's, that's our well, don't look at that part, you know? <laughs> yeah, like you could technically decide to, to do racist and, you know, discriminatory bullshit. Just like, yeah, they could. Everyone has that potential. That was a downer note. <laughs> we always got to bring it down. <laughs> we do, we do. Even right before Christmas. You know, to be honest, though, I mean, the diggers, like, they dug themselves a hole mm. enough because they failed. So, you know, it's not 100% our fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Should have been violent. Yeah, if they had had <laughs> arms, maybe they could have fended off the. They should have read that passage enemies. where Jesus fucks up the market. I mean, yeah, he. I mean, he takes a braided whip to the place. <laughs> I forgot he used a whip. I always pictured him just flipping tables. He does also flip tables. He calls them a den of thieves. <laughs> <laughs> what a baller! And then shortly thereafter, it's when they start saying like, "Hey, should we execute this guy for being like an enemy of the state?" <laughs> So probably precipitated his demise. Sometimes I forget how crazy that is. It's it's wild. I don't know. I've been digging into this stuff lately and just kind of becoming more my vibe. I know it's, mm. you know, it's just, I'm weird, but <laughs> I like Yeah, well. You. We're all weird in our own ways, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What are we doing next week? Next week, we're going to do a communist movie night. Hell yeah. We're going to go to our hometown and force our parents to watch a communist movie with us. <laughs> it's a really <laughs> communist movie too. It's called Reds. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like it. It's a 1981 film starring Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton. Oh, I like Diane Keaton. It's about the October revolution. Oh, that's very communist. Hell yeah. Can't wait to see how dad reacts. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's cool. It's got an interesting lens from the perspective of Jack Reed, who was this journalist who went over there, documented the whole thing, wrote this book called 10 Days That Shook the World. Is that the one that Lennon was like, don't leave out the nasty stuff? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the exact quote. Keep it nasty, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, if you do want to watch this in preparation for our episode, you can check it out if you have an HBO Max subscription or a Hulu, maybe a premium subscription. I'm not sure. Or, you know, just somewhere on the internet, just find it. Ask a friend. <laughs> yeah. Make all your families watch a communist movie. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that unless it feels safe. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. Uh, see you then. All right. Bye. Bye. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. 
If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.